I'd like to welcome you to the ministry of McCormick's Creek Church. We certainly hope that you will enjoy this selection. The ultimate sacrifice. We've been talking about that, that scarlet thread that goes all the way from, from Genesis all the way into, into the, res, uh, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. How the blood, uh, blood covered sin, covered sin, pushed sin forward until this time until the crucifixion, when all the sin in the world came upon the man Christ Jesus on that cross. And no matter how many times you teach or preach about the cross, I, I don't know about you, but it, it always it, it does something to me. It always has, always will do something for me. I know what kind of person I once was. I know where I was headed. I know what was going to happen to me. But Jesus Christ, if I can use this term, interfered in my life. And had he not interfered in my life, I don't think I'd be standing here today. But he did. And through the years, God has healed me. He has led me. He has delivered me. He has kept me. How many people understand what I'm talking about? Am I just talking to... I know I'm preaching to the choir per se. But sometimes we just need to be reminded of what he's done. We just need to be reminded. And Matthew twenty-seven thirty-three through 37, it says, And when they were come into a place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of a skull, that gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall, and when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And they crucified him, parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there and set over his head the accusation written, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. In verse 45, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land into the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood there when they heard that, heard that said, This man calls for Elisha, and straightway out of the... Out of them ran and took a sponge, or one of them rather, ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on the reed and gave him to drink. The rest said, let, the rest said, let be, let us see whether Elijah will, or Elisha will come and save him. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. First Corinthians 1.18 says, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. It's the power of God. Do you realize cross is not something new? It's not even just 2,000 years old. Cross is probably one of the most recognized symbols in the world. And according to the Penguin Dictionary of Symbols, there's evidence of the cross as a symbol from the remotest ages in Egypt, China, and Crete, where, uh, where a cross actually dating from the 15th century B.C. has been discovered. The same reference goes to uh, goes on to state that the cross is the third of four basic symbols, the others being the center, the circle, and the square. Now, although the cross is a sacred symbol to Christians, many people simply accept it as a, as a neat notion, and others treat the cross as a fetish. Some say that the shape of the cross to represent a sword, or it represents a sword, and, and think of it as a, as a harm to, uh, excuse me, and think of it, the harm that it causes, because folks, that it's coming back to me. I'm a hard time seeing for some reason. Uh, it is uh, it is a symbol to other people. I've seen people wear crosses that absolutely was furthest thing from a Christian. 
And uh, it was just a fetish. I, you know, and some people do. They believe the shape is like a sword. And so they think that uh, the cross causes harm. And, 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 and I guarantee you one thing. If I am wrong about when the rapture takes place, which I don't believe I am, but if I'm wrong about the rapture, if we keep going the direction that we're going right now, you're going to see not only one right taken away, but you're going to see the freedom of religion taken away. Because in reality... Religion kills more people than guns, swords, knives, bows, or anything else. It's religion that kills people. And in order to stop war, they'll have a one-world religion. And we know that's, if you've been around any length of time, that's where the Antichrist spirit will take in. He'll offer peace. He'll come with a cry of peace, riding a white horse. He'll come with a cry of peace, and he'll create that that's where we are going. And some people look at the cross as a symbol of war or harm. That's how they see it. And you can keep going with that. To others, its shape reminds them of an aircraft. And they see the cross as a means of mobility in the world of business. If Christians were to think of the cross in light of suggestive symbols, they could see the cross as a plus sign or a telephone pole encouraging heavenly communication. But one thing we need to thank the Lord for. We thank the Lord that the cross is simply a piece of wood that our sins was nailed to. That is what a cross is. I don't need to wear a cross around my neck to remind me of the value of the cross. Paul never intended for us to be that way. He wanted us to remember and know what was done on the cross, not the cross itself. It is a symbol to remind us that Jesus died. Our sins was nailed to a piece of wood. So we're going to address an event that holds significance. For all mankind, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, his sacrificial death on Calvary, what did it do? It demonstrated his unconditional love for sinful humanity. For while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. He paid the ultimate price to redeem mankind. His blood remits sin, his wounds bring healing, and ultimately his death makes it possible for believers who experience this abundant life in him to reap everlasting life. Calvary was not an improvised remedy. You know, so many times people look at things like this. This wasn't something that was improvised. All of a sudden, God decides, well, this is what I'm going to do on the spur of the moment. No, not, not at all. This, this was a plan of salvation. This was divinely designed from the very foundation of the world. I've said this before, but I think somehow you need to get this in your mind. God does not live in time. He lives outside of time, and right now, right now, God sees the crucifixion. He sees the resurrection. He sees us here. He sees the rapture of the church. He sees the millennial reign. He sees all of that right now. That's how what happened on the cross can be brought to Spencer, Indiana, in a building here, McCormick Street Church, and you can come down here and repent, and that blood that was shed at the very time it was shed can be applied to your life. Oh, give him a hand clap. Come on. You know, the Old Testament prophets, they, they caught fragmentary yet detailed glimpses of the reality of a Savior. And amazingly, hundreds of prophecies, when pieced together, gave a complete picture of the nature, the purpose, the betrayal, the torture, the mockery, the rejection, and the desertion of friends. 
and of the death of the Messiah. The prophecies mentioned in today's lesson are by no means comprehensive. They merely provide a sampling of what really was said in the Old Testament concerning the, resur- the death, the crucifixion, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just a, a fragment, if you would, or a sampling of this. And that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about some of the a- aspects. This is a lot of people would think this is, this is an Easter message, and it would be. But it's good for us to hear about the cross often. We need to be reminded of what happened for us. We need to be reminded often. This, is, this used to be all they preached. This is all they preached, and thousands of people would come to God as a result of preaching the cross. So there's power. There's power in the cross of Jesus Christ. Zechariah 11 verse 12 says, So they weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver. The psalmist David foretold Jesus' betrayed, betrayal by a friend and, and the casting of lots for his garments. And Zechariah later prophesied Judas' betrayal of Jesus, the, the subsequent purchase of the potter's field with the 30 pieces of silver and the desertion of his disciples. Judas, the treasure for the group, was, was not above pilfering. For John revealed that said that he was a thief and had the bag, and he bare what was put therein in John 12:6. But another translation explains he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into that money bag. In the New International Version, that's how it talks about it. After some of the larger circle of disciples began to turn away from Jesus, he asked the inner circle, the twelve, he said, will you also go away? Will you also leave? Peter told him, he said, oh, Lord, he said, where are we going to go? You know, there's no place to go. So his faith in the Son, Son of the living God uh, was great. And perhaps the, the disciples were shocked when Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you twelve? He said, But one of you is a devil. There's nothing at all unnatural about devils coming to church. There's not. I guarantee you that within this place right now, there's something slinking behind you. I wouldn't turn around too quick. You might see it. Devils love to come to church. And sometimes people bring those things and they don't even know they're there. You know, you can worship God and raise your hands and, and, and run the aisles and speak in tongues and harbor a spirit that a devil will just stay right there with you. We can make believe. If you're constantly depressed, you've got a depressive devil that's right there with you. If you constantly, I talked to the young marriage, and by the way, thank you for the young marriage for coming last night. It was, I had a good time uh, speaking to them. You know, I, I told them, you know, some of the things that we have to do to, to, to create strong families is to be sure that we have a forgiving attitude. And lack of forgiveness creates more demonic problems than you can ever imagine. Because they just sit right there. We get mad at each other. We get mad at God. Sister, Sister Phyllis just turned 60. Uh, this, that was last, wasn't it last Saturday? I'm sorry, I wasn't supposed to tell them that. You tell men, but I just had to use you because you were the closest. Okay? So she just turned 60. Now, she could be mad at God for letting her be that old. <laughs> said, God, why in the world did you let me, as young woman, be 60 years old? 
Yeah. I mean, look at me. I still look good. And there, there my son-in-law says he's bald-headed and he's not 60. You know, you know, you get, I know that sounds ridiculous, but you would be surprised at some of the ridiculous things that are out there. <laughs> You'd be surprised at somehow people allow things to control their lives that cannot be helped. You know, there's just some things that's going to happen because you're a human being. Don't get mad at God over it. And don't, don't think that you can't come to church and have some kind of spirit right there with you because right in the very presence of Jesus with the twelve was a devil. So don't think it can't happen. So here we go on. He, he said, one of you is a devil. Shortly before the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Judas went to the chief priest and offered to lead the temple guards and officers to Jesus. He had somehow heard of their plot to kill Jesus and seized the opportunity to make some money. He knew about their plot, so this is an opportunity for me to make a little money. So the priests were gloating over Judas', Judas ready betrayal and offered him 30 pieces of silver, according to Mark 14 and 10. And during the Last Supper, Jesus announced one of the twelve would betray him. And they all began to ask. They said, Lord, is it I? And Judas, you know, perhaps not, not wanting to appear different from the rest, was the last to ask, Master, is it I? And Jesus replied, Thou hast said. He said, Then Jesus, Judas got up and left in John thirteen thirty. In the dark of night, the betrayer led the guards to the Garden of Gethsemane. He stepped close to Jesus and kissed him and said, According to the Aramaic Bible in plain English, he said, Shalom, Rabbi. Some commentators say it was customary for a rabbi to kiss his students, but not for the student to kiss the rabbi. It was not the kiss of peace. It was a kiss of betrayal. Judas found that the, that the blood money brought him no lasting pleasure. None whatsoever. In Isaiah 53 and 3 says, He is despised and rejected of men and was esteemed, and we esteemed him not. In modern day courts, during jury selection, anyone who has, who has a prejudicial attitude can be dismissed from serving on the jury. I one time was asked to serve on jury, and I I can't exactly remember the case. It's been a while back, the case, but I obviously was very prejudicial. There's just some things I can't help myself about being that way. You know, if somebody's done something bad, it's obvious that 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 person's done something bad. Everything is, you just come off that way. So, you know, if if a defense lawyer sees that, he immediately didn't want you around. So they kick me out immediately. And uh, and I, I I see that this is I mean to, to be fair, in a court case, there cannot be any prejudicial treatment. It simply can't happen. If the judge is too closely involved with the case or leans toward conviction before the trial, he has an obligation to recuse himself. Both the jury and the judge are supposed to render sound judgments after careful consideration of the evidence presented. That's the reason the Bible says, and, and you know, if you go back to the Old Testament, you'll see all the mess that they made of this in, in Jesus' trial. They said, out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. That means that you cannot point an accusation at anybody unless not someone saying it 
that they witnessed it. And it can't be one witness. It's got to be two or three witnesses. You do not place an accusation against anyone without two or three witnesses. And you can't do it because God told you. God may tell you something, and it may even be true. I'm not saying God would tell you anything, but then if that be the case, if you're supposed to do something about it, there'll be two or three witnesses. Otherwise, God told you so you could pray about the situation. Keep that in mind. Don't walk around, I believe that person, I think God showed me that he's doing this or he's doing that. Well, all right, God, let, everybody, let some people physically witness it so we can do this correctly. That's good preaching. Thank you. Jesus did not receive fair treatment at the hand of his accusers or his supposed defenders. The criminal jurisprudence of the ancient Hebrews, according to Samuel Mendelssohn, explains that Hebrew courts had no system of lawyers and prosecutors as we have today. Instead, the judges were the defenders and the witnesses were the prosecutors. Thus, it was imperative that the judges approached the case with impartiality and careful inquiry to discover evidence in behalf of that accused. So you can see this in Deuteronomy 16 and Leviticus 19. Many chief priests, elders, and scribes hated Jesus because of his popularity. The people loved him. And because they thought that he had made himself equal with God. And his claims also upset many common people. Uh, for instance, during the first synagogue service, Jesus attended after his temptation in the wilderness. He read from the scroll of Isaiah a passage that described the purpose of the Messiah's ministry. When he was finished, he closed the scroll and he said to his fellow Nazarenes, This day is a scripture fulfilled in your ears. Luke 4.21 They became so mad at him because he claimed he was the Messiah that they took him to a brow of the hill and was going to throw him over the hill. So they tried to kill him early in his ministry. Many Jews hated Jesus because he considered himself the Lord of the Sabbath and because he made himself equal with God in Matthew 12, 8. After Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, then the chief priest said, we're going to have to do something. This guy's really doing what he said he is. He must be the real thing. You ever stop and think about that? I mean, right before them, they just had uh, God in the flesh, their Messiah, Raise someone from the dead. What more proof can you... That lets you know we need miracles, yes. But miracles don't always work for people that's already got the Holy Ghost. I mean, look at this. These were religious people. They knew the Old Testament. They knew that Jesus fulfilled the prophecies that were written by the prophets in the Old Testament. They knew that, but they didn't like him. Why? Because they had it, they had it set up. This is why church is getting such messes. We're having church a certain way. This is the way we've always done it. This is the way my daddy did it, my grandpappy, my great-grandpappy, and on down. And we cannot allow someone to come in and get healed of cancer right in the middle of our favorite hymn. We cannot allow someone to come to the altar in the middle of testimony service. When there are hurting people in this world, you can't afford just to keep things status quo just simply because that's the way you've always done it. Well, if you understand that, give the Lord a hand clap. Psalm 35 and 11 says, False witnesses did rise up. They laid to my charge things that I knew not. As Judas and the temple guard strode into the night, Anna scoured the city in search of witnesses who were willing to perjure themselves at Jesus' trial. 
But it was impossible to find at least two who agreed. And meanwhile, Caiaphas, the high priest, made hasty arrangements for an early morning appearance in Pilate's court and assembled the 70 uh, members of the Sanhedrin. Now, the Bible in Matthew 26, 57 says they were scribes and elders. It was the Sanhedrin court which normally would have met during daylight hours after the morning sacrifice. So they're meeting at night, doing this after dark. They weren't supposed to meet before the morning sacrifice. It was supposed to be after the morning sacrifice. So here they're breaking another law, if you would. Um, They had sent the temple guards to arrest Jesus with no formal charges. They bypassed the law of diligent inquisition, according to Deuteronomy 19 and 16, and that is to unearth evidence in favor of the defendant and instead favored the testimony of the prosecutors. So they held a preliminary investigation at the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, on the eve of a Sabbath holy day, which was illegal, John 18, 28. Worst of all, as the night gave way to morning and Jesus was shuffled from the Sanhedrin to Pilate to Herod and back to Pilate, the Jews kept changing the charges. First, they claimed he would destroy the temple. Second, he blasphemed in claiming to be equal with God. Last, he committed treason against the Roman government and plotting against Rome, forbidding to pay tribute to Caesar and claiming to be the Messiah King. So they kept changing the charges. A whole multitude led by the chief priest, brought Jesus to Pilate's judgment hall, stated the charge, we found this fellow perverting the nation, Luke 23. After a short exchange, Pilate was convinced Jesus was no threat to the Roman government. He stated this verdict. He said, I find no fault in this man, in Luke 23, 4. And that should have secured Jesus' release right there. That should have been enough. But the Jews were the more fierce claiming the prisoner was stirring up the entire country from Galilee to Judea. At the word Galilee, Pilate's ears perked up, and that was Herod's jurisdiction. So he sent the prisoner to Herod, whom Jesus had once described as that fox. I told this before at home, I, I, I killed a fox and a, a squirrel. For those of you that are anti-hunting, you need to pray for me. Um, I, I shot this fox and this squirrel with a bow. So I was proud I did this with a bow. And so I had him mounted. So I got this fox... He's standing on a limb. The squirrel is draped over the limb. He's got one foot on it. He's got his head all perked up looking right at you. And every time I see that term, Herod the fox, I think of that. that I almost brought it. I think of that. Because that's exactly how Herod had that whole area. His foot was on him. He's looking around. He was cunning. I, you know, I looked up, just looked up. Sometimes you see the term foxes in the Old Testament actually means jackals. But in the New Testament, in this one, it meant, actually meant a fox, like we know a fox. And a fox is extremely cunning. They're slick. Coyotes hate foxes. They'll kill every one of them they can. But a fox will learn to live around coyotes simply because he's smarter than a coyote. And he'll learn to deal with that. Foxes hate cats. They'll kill every cat they come around. So if you lose your little tabby, it's probably because of a fox living around you. And so they'll do that. But, the, the, you know, the fact that Jesus said that fox, what he was saying was this, this guy's cunning. He's a politician. He belongs in the White House. <laughs> That's some good preaching there, wasn't it? <laughs> so he said, you know, he said, just <laughs> that, that fox. 
And, and so they took him to, to Herod. Herod eagerly questioned the prisoner, and the chief priest and scribes accused him vehemently. But Jesus never said a word. Psalm 38, 13, Isaiah 53 and 7. It says the prophecies concerning Jesus never opened his mouth. Herod nor Pilate had found grounds to convict. The Roman governor was still of a mind to let Jesus go, for he knew that the chief priest had delivered Jesus because of envy, not because of crime. Do you realize how much damage is done because of envy? There's a lot of people hurt. A lot of good people. Sometimes the friends... You know, good friends, a friendship can be broken up, and one friend doesn't have an idea why he can no longer be a friend with this person because the other one is envious against him. Envy destroys a great deal. Now, during the feast, it was customary to release one prisoner of the people's choosing. So Pilate wanted desperately to release Jesus, but the crowd called for Barabbas. Barabbas was an insurrectionist. And a murderer. And after Pilate complied, he, he again tried to reason with the, with the crowd, but they dealt their trump card. Now, this was their trump card, John 19 and 12. And, and, and it's, they said this, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Herod was a Jew. Or Pilate, sorry. Whoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. So, they threw the trump card out. I'm going to get in trouble with Caesar if I don't do something. There's the politics that are involved. So Pilate insisted. He said, let's, let's try this. He said, I will chastise him, then let him go in Luke 23. Let me just chastise him, and then let him go. Isaiah 50, verse 6 says, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that pluck off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. In Isaiah 53, 5, he said, but he, he was wounded for my, our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. And many times, you've heard it if you've been in church any length of time about what the scourge was. A lot of times it was, it was tipped with, with bone. It was tipped with metal if they had metal. Uh, a lot of times it was sheep bones, what they used. They, uh, leather thongs was, uh, was extremely heavy. And they would actually tear apart the flesh and rip open underlying veins and arteries, exposing organs. And a lot of times people died simply from the scourging. And then if that wasn't the case, just the scourging alone, if they hadn't crucified him, infection could have set in and killed the person because of all the stuff that was on the, uh, the scourge itself. So the tortures of Jesus did not know... And this is, what I, this is one of those things that always get me. They, these things happen as, as terrible as it was and as horrible and nasty and painful as you think of taking as many stripes. He didn't take 39 stripes. That was the Jews' 39 stripes. Romans beat him. They could have given him 150 stripes. They scourged him and scourged him. And they didn't realize that every drop of blood that spattered from that scourge was for our healing. Because the Bible says, with his stripes we are healed. When you really get an idea of what pain that Jesus went through, and he, that blood that was, that was shed on that scourging post had a purpose, just like the blood on the cross. Because every time he was hit, there was one more of our sicknesses that was taken care of. One more time you could come down to the front and good can lay hands on you and that blood that fell from his back would heal your body. Oh, give him that. Oh. 
<laughs> I have taught this in Bible studies and homes and, and, and on the chart, search for true chart, and got a picture. And I, this has been some of the hardest things for me to manage to get through simply because I have, and many of you have felt it too, I've, I have felt the trust and the touch of healing in my body. And I, not just from minor things, but some major things. And I, I've known, you know, just by trust, telling God, God, I don't care what you do here. If you want to kill me, then kill me. But if you heal me, heal me. And, and I've had God instantly touch my body and take away something that would have killed me. And then when I look at this and see people who take it lightly, no, I'm still getting older and I've still got pains and I've got other problems. But guess what? I'm still kicking today because Jesus healed me a few years ago. That none of you can say the very same thing. Some of you are still going today because of what Jesus did for you a few years ago. First Peter two twenty four. Hebrews 9:22 and Isaiah 53 and 5 tells you about the scourging. With his stripes ye were healed. Scourging was not enough. It wasn't enough to satisfy the accusers of Jesus. The Romans took the man whose marred visage, the Bible says, made it impossible to recognize. He was so bloody. You gotta understand they were beating his back, but that scourging, that scourge, that that, that whip would have went around and hit him in the face as well. That's why he was marred. This was a, what they call a cat of nine tails. It had nine different strips. So when they beat his back, it, was, it would wrap around his face, his neck, uh, and it would mar his face. It was impossible to recognize. And then on top of that, they roughly pushed a crown of thorns into his brow, six-inch thorns that would have gone all the way down to his, to his skull. Threw a purple robe over his shoulders. They bowed the scrape before him as the king smote him upon the head with a reed, spit on him with contempt. Still, Jesus did not rebuke them, did not retaliate against them. And that's another thing I read. You know, you, you think, you think when you you've got that I have to pray through temper every day of my life. And Paul says that he died daily. He had to die to something. All of us have to die daily to something. My greatest thing is sometimes I get so mad that I wanna I, I, I wanna I wanna cry. It's the best thing to do. Say that just right there. And so I pray through it every day. And I think of this situation. How many of us how many of us would not try to retaliate in some way? Just because of the very the, 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 the fact that someone is, is humiliating you. It's not it's not just the pain factor, it's the humiliation. How many of us wouldn't try to strike back? Someone spit in your face. Oh, you, we can all stand and round and say, oh, I can turn the other cheek. But come on, how hard is it to turn the other cheek? How hard? And every time I see this, I, I just, it just makes me so thrilled to know that I've got his spirit in here. That is what keeps you. That's what helps you and makes you be able to overcome that human nature that we have. That I can overcome anger. I can overcome fear. I can overcome addictions. I don't have to smoke because I've got a, a, a pure spirit inside of me. I don't have to drink because I have a pure spirit inside of me. The baptism of the Holy Ghost. The spirit of Jesus Christ inside of me. I don't have to do those things because of that. And I don't know what you have on the ball. You still have something you have to deal with every day. All of us do. 
But there is a spirit of God that is within us through the, through the Holy Ghost that can help us to overcome whatever it is we need to overcome. <clears throat> After the scourging, Pilate again brought Jesus before the crowd. He said, I bring him forth to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. But the chief priests clamor over Pilate's protest and realizing they would never give up, he finally issued the death sentence. They led Jesus away to be crucified. And any, I, I, I put, again, I, I put myself in some of these, these places. Do you know that if, if you were a straggler behind that group, you wanted to see the crucifixion, but they'd already gone, that all you would have had to have done was follow those bloody footprints. That's all you would have had to have done. You know, bloody footprints always lead us to Calvary. I had bloody footprints when I came to God. I was bleeding in a spiritual way. I was on my deathbed. You were on yours. All of us were. But if we're a little bit behind, all we have to do is look down and follow those bloody footprints. And it'll lead us right to the suffering Savior. Aren't you glad you know him? Aren't you glad you know him? Oh, just raise your hands a little while. Just thank him that you could follow those bloody footprints. Thank you, Jesus. Sometimes we think we're too late. You know that? Sometimes they think that there's nothing we can do. And we, we, by the time we, we figure it all out and we go, we can't find him anymore. But all we have to do is look down. Bloody footprints always lead us to Jesus. Always lead us to Jesus. Oh. Yeah. <clears throat> they pierced my hands and my feet, Psalm twenty two sixteen. And Isaiah fifty three nine. He made his grave with the wicked. He was numbered with the transgressors. The symbol of a cross has come to mean triumph over sin and Satan. And devotion to the one who conquered them. But the cross on which Jesus died was nothing more than a crude, rough piece of board. Acts 5.30 talks about it. They call it a tree. Some ministers believe that it was just a single post that they crucified him on. I looked it up, though, and the term tree in the Greek can mean cross. It can mean any piece of wood, any shape. It just simply means the place where he was crucified. I personally believe that it was a regular cross that they crucified him on. And he's, he was crucified. I, and, you know, I, I think Brother Hill might have preached that here one time. He talked about, you know, we got the vertical that leads to God, and you got the horizontal that leads to mankind. And I believe that Jesus would have used that kind of analogy. I believe that's exactly right. He was pointing towards two malefactors on either side of him, offering them his bloody hands. And so, so I believe for truth that he really was on a cross. His cross stood between the crosses of two malefactors. One thief echoed the jeers of the mocking crowd, If thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. But the dying Savior's mission was to save others. In order to do that, he had to die. The second thief rebuked the first, Dost thou not fear God? We deserve to die, but this man hath done nothing amiss. 
He turned to Jesus said, Lord, remember me. Jesus, touched by the thief's contrite heart, replied, Today shall thou be with me in paradise. Even in excruciating pain in the throes of death, the Lord's passion was compassion. Even in the throes of death, he had compassion. And he could save those two malefactors. He could. He was a high priest and he was a lamb. That's what the law called for. Grace hadn't taken effect because Jesus was not yet dead. And, uh, and uh, none, of, none of the New Testament was in effect until the testator died. And he had not died. But under the law, he fulfilled the law. He was a lamb. He was a high priest. That's what they needed. So he could say, today you will be with me in paradise. And it was legitimate. It was legitimate. I've had so many people say, well, how could he do that? If you have to be baptized in Jesus' name and you have to be filled with the Holy Ghost. How could Jesus do that? It's because Jesus had not yet died. The Holy Ghost was not yet given. The testator's name and baptism was in effect till he died. Unfazed, the soldiers divided up Jesus' blood-stained clothing. His coat must have been a special prize. For John remarked, it was without seam, woven from the top throughout. It was a shame to rend such a, a, a fine garment as this. So they cast lots for it. In Isaiah 53, 10, 11, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear the iniquities. He shall bear their iniquities. That's a, that's a paradox, if, you, if there ever was one. The sinless one became sin for us. He who knew no iniquity bore the iniquities of us all. As God, he was life, but as man, he tasted death. For every man in order that we might live. In Hebrews 9.29. He tasted death for every man that we might live. That we might live. I'm going to have to turn these things towards me. I'm straining my voice because I can't hear myself. Turn that one just a little bit, would you? Yeah, that's better. After you've done this for a few hundred years, there are certain things you just got to have. <laughs> every man and every man he tasted death you know you, you, you look at all this and, and again you wonder how and why I, I, don't, I don't believe it's, very, it's even possible for us as humanity to fathom the amount of love that Jesus had to be able to give for to, to, to go through that. Yes, we know he was God. We know that. And we understand that's why, as God and man, they could live a sinless life. But also, he was human. And the, the whole point in all this was that humanity had to give in to divinity and go through this so that we could have what we have today. But to be able to understand it and to see how he could do it, it's, it's, it's almost beyond us to be able to, to get it. So, so it's such a paradox. Such a paradox. Jesus hung on the cross from the third hour until the ninth hour or six hours. The agony of spirit and soul was much greater than the bodily abuse. He, he suffered that day. He, he who knew no sin bore again the iniquity, shame, and the degradation of the sins of all mankind. He felt everything that a sinner feels. And for those of us who there are certain sins that are so abhorrent 
He felt all those things that we feel so abhorrent about. He felt that. And he died for those people. The people some of us can't stand. Some of us can't handle. He died for them. I have to remind myself. I have to remind myself that Jesus died and felt the very same kind of shame that other people that I don't like. Oh, I might love them, but I don't like them. The Bible says you got to love you, know, you love your enemies. So when you tell me you love me, that's not telling me anything. I want you to like me. <laughs> so that's 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 the important thing. So he hung there. Offered himself as a sacrificial lamb, becoming a fulfillment and a realization of the trespass offering to atone for sin. At about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? David Norris wrote a book. Uh, I've read part of it. I don't know if I still have it. I don't think I do through the years. I've loaned things and lost them. His book is called I Am. And he suggests that this cry issued from an overwhelming feeling of aloneness, akin to what David expressed in Psalm 22 and 1. God had not forsaken David since he was still in covenant with him. Second Samuel 7 verse 12 says this. And God had not forsaken his beloved son. For Hebrews 9.14 says, Christ through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God. Norris says this, or argues this rather, he said, it was in submitting himself to the Spirit within him that Jesus accomplished this redemptive act. God did not die, yet he who was God died. It was this offering of himself that was in fact salvation. It was the act of he who was God of dying that was the act of salvation. I don't know if just in, in terms, you have to ponder that. That the fact that God, the eternal God, the God who created heavens and the earth, the God who lives outside of time, would actually condescend, if you would, to the point of dying for us. That was the salvation act in itself. That God did not have to do this, but He did. Again, Jesus cried, not in a feeble voice of a dying man, but in a triumphant cry of victory, it is finished. He had accomplished the Father's purpose, and he paid sin's debt. The heel of the Lord's anointed had crushed the head of the serpent, according to Genesis 3.15. All they that see me laugh me to scorn in Psalm 22 and 7. And Isaiah 63 and 3 said, I have trodden the winepress alone. After Jesus' arrest, all the disciples forsook him and fled. Matthew twenty six fifty six. Peter followed afar and ended up in the courtyard of the high priest where he, through, the, through fear, denied three times that he knew the Lord. John the Beloved, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's children watched the crucifixion from afar in Matthew 27. For the first three hours, the crowd, the soldiers, and one of the thieves mocked Jesus to scorn, but around noon... They quieted when an eerie darkness crept over the earth. It shrouded the scene for the next three hours. At the ninth hour, the hour of Jesus' death, the earth heaved and the rocks rent. Graves opened and the bodies of saints arose and were seen in Jerusalem. None of the tormentors were laughing now. They were afraid. At least one soldier gasped, truly this was the Son of God. Truly this was.
So Jesus at the very end let them know that he was in charge of it all. The earth even mourned. The earth even mourned. The priest in the temple stared open mouth. Can you imagine this? You're a priest in the temple. You're standing there before the veil, and all of a sudden the thing just three foot. They say that veil was three foot thick, and all of a sudden it rips. Can you imagine? I think I would be finding some place to figure this out. And of course, a lot of people did. This exposed the Ark of the Covenant in the Holiest of Holies. This rending signified the finished work of Calvary and the fulfillment of the law and the dawning of a brand new covenant. Brand new. The blood Jesus shed on Calvary washes away the sins of the world. In John 1.29, Revelations 1.5, His death provides our justification through, through His imputed righteousness and our sanctification or being set apart from the world. That's what we are. That's what His death did. It not only gave us the option of having the Spirit of God within us, covering us with His blood, but it sets us apart. We are different. The Bible calls us a peculiar people. We cannot be like the world if we belong to Him because He's not of this world. That's why we are not like this world. To wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto Himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, as sin came unto the world through one man, and death as a result of sin, so death spread to all men, no one being able to stop it or to escape its power because of men's sin. That was the Amplified in Romans 5.12. 1 Peter 1.18 says, For as much as you know that you are not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So what a virtual, it's a virtual river of the blood of thousands of animal sacrifices for sin under the law could not do. Jesus accomplished once and for all, according to Hebrews 10.10. 10. Past, present, and future generations took to Jesus Christ, or looked to Jesus Christ, rather, for forgiveness, holiness, and the promise of the Spirit of God. That is a promise that we have of the Spirit of God. Never, ever doubt that. If you are here and you've not received the Holy Ghost, and maybe you've sought the Holy Ghost, you've not received it, not because Jesus doesn't want to give it to you, it's because you've just not opened yourself up to Him completely. It is a gift. He stands before you. All you have to do is simply give yourself to it, and when you do, you will begin to speak with another tongue because it's got to be according to the Scripture in several places. It has to speak with another tongue. It is the evidence that God has taken over, and from that you will bear the fruits of the Spirit. Oh, my God. You know... Uh, in the early 20th century, a preacher by the name of Harry A. Ironside told this story of a young Russian soldier assigned the job of a paymaster who unscrupulously gambled away his pay and the pay of others. And learning of an impending audit, the soldier recorded his gambling losses in a ledger and realized he could never pay the large debt. At the bottom of the page, he wrote, A great debt, who can pay? Deciding to take his life at midnight, he pulled out his revolver, placed it beside him. But as the hour approached, the soldier grew sleepy, and he nodded off. That night, as Tsar Nicholas took his customary walk through the barracks, he noticed a light on in the soldier's barracks. He quietly slipped in, read the note, scribbled on the ledger, and left. The soldier awoke, realizing the time, reached for his gun, 
brought it to his head and began to squeeze the trigger when his glance fell on a large scrawl at the bottom of the ledger page, and it said Nicholas. As only Nicholas could repay the soldier's debt, only Jesus can pay yours. You never get good enough for this. But Jesus paid the debt so you don't have to get good enough. Isn't that great? Stand with me. Stand with me. Let's give the Lord a good hand clap. Thank you, Jesus. Uh, How grateful all of us should be. How grateful all of us should be that we have this wonderful, wonderful gift that we have because Jesus died on the cross. It makes me want to serve him that much more. Every time I go through it, I can read it in the Scripture, I can teach on it. It doesn't matter. Hear someone else teach on it. Hear someone else preach on it. I don't care how poorly someone would teach on the crucifixion. Personally, I don't think it's possible to teach on it poorly. Uh, you know, when you begin to think and you begin to, you begin to go over what Jesus did for us, then it just makes you appreciate the fact that how many times you fall, how many times you mess up, that blood still is applied. How many times have I I've done something wrong or said something wrong or upset somebody in the wrong way? And how many times I have fallen on my face and said, Jesus, I, I, I did this. I, I need your help. I've got, I got to overcome this. And many times there's been things that I just couldn't overcome. And I just simply said, I can't do this. I've said this before. It's too big for me. And you know God would just intervene in that situation. That's all he wants from us. He just wants us to be able to tell him how we really feel. I really want to overcome this, Jesus. I don't want to entertain this particular spirit anymore. I don't want to be this way any longer. And when we do, that's when he begins to intervene and he begins to make a difference in all of our lives. I'm glad that he is my Savior. What a terrible thing it would be to believe just in a Mohammed. And that your life was so, I mean, your life would, it was never any promise of salvation according to the Muslim religion. There's never a promise of that. The only way to, you can make it to heaven in the Muslim religion is to kill some Christians. And that is what it says. No matter what they, that's what it says. You want to make it to heaven? Murder some Christians. Make yourself a martyr. Otherwise, you just, maybe you'll make it. Now, I realize that there's, a, there's, there's some people who live this way, and I know that the Bible says that we've got to beware when we think we stand lest we fall. But I want to say this. I'm doing the best I can, and I've got a hope, and I'm believing I'm going to make it to heaven. I'm not going to stand around constantly thinking that I'm not going to make it to heaven. I'm not going to worry myself sick. There's too many people that are out there serving God that are so worried about their own salvation, they forget everybody else around them. Do you understand that's a trick of the enemy? If you're constantly worried about you making it to heaven, you won't try to reach anybody else because you may think you're ever good enough. But we are good enough because he's made us good. And we love him. Let's raise our hands to heaven. Let's pray right now. Father, we thank you for your blessings, your goodness, your mercy. And I pray here this morning you touch each and every one. Bring them back, God, early tonight to pray. And let's get Jesus to get what we need from you and to see others, Jesus, receive salvation. That's what's important. And we want to look to you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord bless you.